I met him at through uh, Merging Vets and Players and Operation Jump 22. I had a little booth there in um, Oceanside, and he he looked fashionable, and he was like, man, I'd love to wear your jeans, but but he said, I, I can't because of my prosthetic. It's very uncomfortable. And I saw him again at the Marine Corps birthday, and then I said, there, there's something that we can do. I'm sure we I'll figure it out. And uh, fast forward, I went through a really rough time. That was in 2019. Yeah, I lost, I got my truck repoed lost my, I had a warehouse and lost that. And was just, I said, the last thing I do, I'm gonna make a jean for this Marine. And I borrowed a car to go to LA and, uh, I met him and his wife and within 48 hours we had a jean for him. So he comes back and, uh, apparently it, you know, made his daily life easier. And then he can now like feel normal in public is what he tells me. So fast forward to project 2020, he ends up, and mind you, he lost his left leg and left eye in Afghanistan. And he drove himself from Temecula to Vegas, shows up and is like, hey, I'm here to help you out. I was like, holy crap. Okay. It was just super impactful for me. You know, again, finding purpose, right? right. So, uh, yeah, come, come to find out, we end up being on the cover of California Apparel News, you know, American Pride with him on the cover and the story about us. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Before we get into this week's guest, I need a few favors because I can't grow this without your help. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the podcast. I also need your assistance getting the word out. If you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word to anyone you think will enjoy it also. But what I need the most is your feedback and input. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and any suggestions you have for guest selection. Please go to the podcast webpage at transitiondrillpodcast.com and send me a direct message. Also, if you'd leave me a rating and any comments on iTunes, I would truly appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined in this episode by Trinidad Garcia. Trinidad joined the Marine Corps a little late in life. He joined at 31 years old. Yep, he had to get an age waiver. He served two enlistments and deployed twice with the 2-7 Weapons Company to the Pacific. While at his final assignment was a reserve unit in LA, he secretly applied to the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. Yep, as much as he wanted to be a Marine, he also wanted to design clothes. He was accepted and had to balance his remaining military time and school schedule. But in 2018, while closing in on graduation, he founded Trinidad Three Jeans. And since starting his company, he's experienced some growth and success. And with that, he expanded his mission to support veterans with every pair of his jeans. But besides running his own company, Okay, it's not that successful yet. Trinidad also works for Conflict Kinetics, a civilian company that trains military members through computer-based shooting scenarios. In addition to that, Trinidad's also had his own struggles with trauma and his feeling of loss of identity and transitioning out of the military. So he got involved with merging vets and players. MVMP's goal is to create an environment where military members can share each other's strength and experience to support each other in building fulfilling lives of service and strength. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy episode 49. 
this, no, this a works. good setup. It's a, I'm impressed. I'm really impressed. Maybe you can give me a little coaching on podcasting. Cause I think for the brand, it's important too. like for definitely, people to, you know, for me to talk about the brand and interview people and tell some of the stories along with like, you know, other people that are dedicated to, to podcasting. Well, I think you, you've, you've got a unique audience in that you bring a skill set. Obviously you can talk about the fashion side of things and, and there will be an audience just purely for that. But then if you start introducing that audience to probably a large number of veterans that are in the fashion industry that they don't even realize right. um, that would generate more interest in that. Cause I'm sure that, you know, one of the, one of the things that you'd find is, is they want to be supportive of veteran owned businesses, but they probably just don't know how many veterans actually do it. Right. Yeah. And along my journey, um, I've met one Marine in the industry and he's been working with me. So we found each other <laughs> through the industry and yeah, it's been, um, I know there's more out there or maybe people wanting to get into the industry and don't know how to go about it. Um, because it is, probably one of the most opposite types of careers from military service. Um, it, it's definitely not what people would say, Hey, he went from the military to, to what? <laughs> yeah. I, I say machine guns to sewing machines. There you and, go. And it happens like to this day. I've had guests who've gone from law enforcement to the culinary world, you know, and that, and those kind of stories are what really are interesting to, to talk to people about is what made you pivot you know, so I don't want to say wildly, but widely mm -hmm. differing. So going into you, let's go backwards a little bit. Sure. Where'd you grow up? Oxnard, California. I was born in Port Wanimi, so not too far from here. And then uh, grew up here in Oxnard. Big family, small family? Um, small family um, of uh, Mexican descent. So got a large family on my mom's side. Dad's side, uh, multi-generation here from the United States. So my, uh, on my dad's, my grandfather was born here in 1918. And, um, yeah, so good, uh, diverse mix, large family. So brothers, sisters, uh, yes. Uh, one brother, uh, two sisters. Yep. And growing up, what was life like for you? Were you heavy into sports academics? I was more heavy into sports and academics and, uh, <laughs> like all of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I grew up playing baseball, soccer, basketball. Um, and, uh, yeah, academics was kind of on the, the back burner a little bit, but I still made, you know, did okay. Um, but I found just early on, like when I was in, I mean, kindergarten, first grade, when it was time for back to school shopping, like I was fascinated going to Mervyn's, you know, and, and we had limited resources. So I had to get creative. So my mom would say, all right, you could either get like, you know, three shirts, one pair of pants or two pants. And you know, and so I didn't want to be made fun of at school. So I would get really creative on picking out what outfits and what combinations I would wear Monday, Tuesday, and then like do a little switch for Thursday, Friday. So like you would think my wardrobe was a lot bigger than what it was. And you were putting all this together as, as young as eight, nine, 10 years old. No, before that, I would say like five or six. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where did your do you, if you're looking back on it, mm -hmm. did you have somebody in your life that was very fashion forward that kind of got you thinking about that? Um, my mom would, as a kid, I see a lot of pictures and I was wearing suits as a three and four year old. <laughs> and, uh, my mom said I would always like put them on and like, 
be fine with it where most kids would take it off and, you know, scuff up their shoes. Um, I found myself too, like in sports when it was time to get our uniform, like I was really in tune to that, like more than everybody else. So I was just really into clothing at an early age. My grandmother used to sew. So I think that's where a lot of it came from. Um, she would sew me shirts and, and outfits and, you know, seeing the pictures from, uh, from back in the day, I was like, wow, from a young age. I mean, um, I, I was like three, four years old, uh, yeah, about three or four. Uh, I see some pictures and I I had a kiss doll like Gene Simmons. So I I played with dolls, but a manly doll, you know, (laughs) and, uh, was just the diversity and mix of, of like color and, you know, just was just intrigued by fashion and in the art, but obviously didn't know I had a dream. Like I would see Levi's and I just, as a kid would be like, man, I wonder what it'd be like to have my name on there, you know, but it was just a dream. You mentioned your grandmother. So was she actually a, a clothing maker or just, yeah. she would make um, dresses and clothes for like my mom growing up and the family. Cause there was limited resources. So they, you know, she would get fabric and, sew them clothes because we have that in common so my grandmother's uh, italian descent and she was a seamstress uh, in her when she was still in italy not when mm. i was a kid but i still remember being learned how to or taught how to sew a button i mean obviously she wasn't making clothes or anything but we kind of had that in common also yeah so coming out of high school what were you thinking was going to be your future well i mean even down in seventh grade i took sewing as an elective um, and my dad, he's a Vietnam veteran. <laughs> I'm sure that went over well. He pulled me out, <laughs> pulled me out, made me pick another elective fast forward into high school. Um, I took sewing again twice and he showed up with the counselor, pulled me out. Both now, times. was this home ec or specifically sewing? Um, it was, it was home ec, but you can pick either cooking or sewing. You know, and so I went for sewing. <laughs> I'm sure there were, you were the only guy in the, all. it's one way to meet girls. <laughs> yeah, it was. But, um, I mean, I was just so in tune with, you know, wanting to learn how to sew in, in fashion and, and just being like, you know, watching MTV growing up and just, you know, following all the, all the trends and whatnot. And so in fact, you know, in uh, my senior year in high school, well, even eighth grade, I was voted best dressed. Um, I go into high school, um, senior year, trendiest um, in the fashion part of the yearbook. And it was always something that I I thought about. Um, But another thing that stuck in my head as a kid is my dad brought home a uh, VCR (laughs) for the VCR videotape of a movie called Full Metal Jacket. Okay. And Every one of us has watched that. Right. And I don't know why I, he, he did it, but it also fascinated me like as a kid. Was he trying to instill the Marine Corps in you? Cause no. that would almost seem like a video that would make you go. Mm, no yeah. Thanks. yeah. I think he was trying to maybe deter me from military service. Cause my grandfather was all is also a veteran in the Navy world war two, Korea, Vietnam. And so it was, it's kind of, you know, in the family, but um, I don't know. I mean, it, the movie came out and I just, found it to be fascinating and it just stuck in the back of my, my head. And so when I, I was uh, in high school looking to go to college, um, my dad's like, no, you gotta be a doctor, you know, or a dentist. So I was a, yeah, I, I was a biology major in college, but I remember, um, fashion school FIDM went to my school and I talked to them 
you know, but I couldn't tell my dad. And at the time the recruiters were calling too, and my dad would like hang up on them and he'd be like, no, go to, go to college first. And then, you know, if you want to go into the military, then how long was your dad in the military? Uh, he was in for eight years. Oh, so not a lifer. Yeah. He wasn't a lifer. No, but he wasn't pushing you or it was not. No, he was discouraging it. Yeah. Yeah. He was in Vietnam in 1967 and 68. So, uh, yeah, he told me like, nah, you don't want to do that. Just like go to, go to college. If you do want to go in the military, go in as an officer was his recommendation. Did that end up becoming an, an option or something you were thinking about? Um, it was, uh, I, I was, a sophomore in college and I, you know, talked to a Navy recruiter, scored really high on the ASVAB. And he, he actually told me, you know what, just finish your bachelor's and then come back. He said, cause you're, you know, pretty squared away, but, um, yeah, life took me a, another direction. So like I, I was 19 years old and I was, um, selling and designing soccer uniforms here locally. So, so it was in your blood. You were, yeah. you were going to be around fashion and clothing. It just kept coming back. And then I was, you know, I taught myself how to screen print. So I was printing shirts. And then from there, you know, all the local rappers from here in Oxnard were like wearing my stuff. So I was getting a little bit of street cred, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I opened up my, my first little store. I must've been about, yeah, about 1920 here in downtown Oxnard and had no idea really what I was doing, but it was just trying to figure it out. Were you selling your own stuff? Or? Yeah, my own stuff. Yeah. Yep. And, and what uh, were you designing at that? Other than doing the screen printing, were you actually yeah. making any Well, clothes? I was making money from selling soccer uniforms because that was like, and then with my creative side, I think I gave away way more than I ever sold. <laughs> so yeah. Rule number one of not how to succeed at business. Exactly. <laughs> Horrible business, man, from day one. Uh, sometimes bites me in the butt. I'm, I'm very generous at times. That's but, not uh, yeah, but, um, it really, again, it, I was in college, I switched my major to, um, business from biology and then in business, I mean, I saw all my notes, I was doodling on the side. I wasn't even like paying attention to what was going on. Cause I just, yeah, my creative side kept taking over. Do you have a lot of what I say would call creative people in your family, artists, that type stuff? Uh, one cousin, but no, not a lot. So a lot of creative people, just hardworking people. So work ethic, definitely. So you were an anomaly in your family. And I don't mean that in a negative way, no, being definitely. very artistic yep. in, in, in your drive. Yeah. Very artistic. And really like, you know, I think most of my family just saw that I was pretty much like a weirdo or kind of <laughs> just like just out there. Cause I was just doing odd jobs and, you know, bouncing around like most starving artists do. And, um, yeah, did that for a while was selling again. I found a niche in sports and soccer. So I partnered up with, uh, he played for the LA galaxy, Paul Caligiuri, U S soccer hall of famer. And, um, we and what were, year are we talking about? So that's, this is uh 99. Okay. Yeah, 98, 99. And then, uh, after that I, uh, had to get a real job. So, <laughs> so I was working as a buyer for a forklift company and just, I had like a picture. So you've, gradu you've graduated college at this point, but I got my AA and then I was a senior at Cal State Northridge and I dropped out. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that didn't go over very well with the family, but I just couldn't, yeah, just couldn't really find my, myself. Just not, no pun intended, no yeah. passion in just academics. Right. Exactly. Just the, the passion for academics and really direction at the time. 
And at what point, I know you're saying you were making soccer uniforms, but uh-huh. was there a point where you actually ventured into making more mainstream clothing? And, and when did that yeah. happen? So more mainstream was 2004 into 2005. I started, you know, designing leather jackets and then doing a little bit more mainstream stuff. I opened up a showroom in downtown L.A., uh, I think they had a change in management and they saw I came with cool stuff. So they somehow let me in there. And I mean, Puma, um, a lot of big brands were there and then me. <laughs> but all stuff that you were making yourself. Yeah. Yeah. S- some stuff I was making myself, some stuff I was sourcing out, but designing everything myself uh, from bags to, I mean, I had a cool little collection and I convinced the manager to give me an opportunity there amongst all the giants. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I got there and I was like, wow, now what? Did you have a mentor or anything in this? Or for instance, making a jacket, did you just take a jacket and kind of reverse engineer it? Yeah, that's exactly even screen printing. Like I just would go to the screen print supply place in LA and just, all right, how do you do this? How do you make a screen? How do you make a film? And like with everything was just self-taught because I didn't have any formal schooling at the time. And even, I mean, there at, at the uh, California market center, uh, there, the lady down at the copy center, she probably just felt bad for me of how lost I really was. Cause I didn't know, like there was a market happening and buyers were coming through and I didn't have a line sheet. I didn't have all my stuff that I needed. I didn't even know what it was. And she kind of helped me a little bit and she's like, yeah, we got a buying office coming in. And, um, yeah, so I, I did a presentation to that buying office. And then at the time I needed more money. So Were you seeing a profit though? Um, no, no. I was just like whatever I was making from work, dumping it in there and then spending money on samples. And then I had rent now. And so I took it all the way until like, I, <laughs> I remember going to the gas station and my debit card wouldn't work anymore. <laughs> So you're like, I think I need to reevaluate my yeah, life. Yeah. So I started, uh, repoing big rigs, you okay. know, started doing some, some crazier stuff, chasing people down the highway and kind of, you know, not to the extent of law enforcement, but as, as far as I can take it of chasing probably equally down and, dangerous though. And, uh, recovering, you know, big rigs. So I did that just to try to make money. And then I, I bought a, a big rig myself, finance one, two, and then there was a huge, um, diesel shot up similar to where it's at now. This was in 06 and, uh, yeah, all my trucks broke down. So you, you basically started a trucking company, I started a trucking company. Yep. What were you hauling? Strawberries. Oh, okay. Yeah. From here all the way to Portland, Maine. Long drive. You were driving. I was driving myself. And then I had a team, another guy that would drive with me. And, um, at, yeah. any, at any point in time in all this, are you still trying, you're basically trying to generate money to, to put to do back brand. into your fashion. That's all I was trying to do. Do you have a family at this time? Um, my, my wife was pregnant. Um, and in 07, our, my daughter was born and that's when stuff kind of fell apart. So yeah, I lost my house, had to sell my car, the last car I had. And then I ended up with a bike, a bicycle and, um, I was in good shape, but by then I was already 31 years old. And so for everybody listening, this is where we're going to turn the corner and say, let's go in the military. Yep. I remember back to private pile. Boom. And I always knew like if I didn't make it or didn't reach a certain level that I needed to, that I would join the military. Like it was always kind of in the back of my head. 
and uh, came to a point where, yeah, I just didn't fit in anywhere. And, you know, the problem was I was 31, the cutoff was 27. And not being sarcastic, I would imagine being so driven, wanting to start a fashion brand, going in the military really probably isn't conducive to that. No. Nope. However, sorry to cut you off. Okay, please. When I was talking to my recruiter, I saw the schools that were available because he was like, oh, well, I know you're older. You have some college, you know, you can use a GI bill. And then I saw that fashion school was one of the, the schools on the list. One of the schools so, that nobody else has ever signed right. up for. So I asked him, I'm like, okay, so you're telling me if I join the Marine Corps infantry, I can go to this fashion school. And he, and he said, and Sergeant Luke will tell you one day, it, Cause he'll never forget that uh, conversation. He said, I don't know why you would go there, but <laughs> it's on the list. So yeah, definitely. They're even looking at it. Go, why is it even on the list? Yeah, why? <laughs> That's what he was like. There's a fashion school on there. <laughs> and, um, but I knew when I was driving by, when I had the showroom before I got evicted and I still have my eviction <laughs> notice from there, but um, I knew the answers were there. I just, you know, it's a private college though. And, like it was more expensive than USC, some of their programs. So I, at the time there was just no way I was going to be able to, to get that knowledge. So I, uh, yeah, I turned to the Marine Corps to restart my life. And when I went in, I just, I'm going to pause you one second. Short. What was your family's take on you deciding to go in the military? Yeah. My dad told me, uh, he discouraged me. <laughs> like everybody was shocked, especially because, Typically, when you go to the military, you're about 18, 19, not maybe, a walker, maybe 22. Yeah. And <laughs> not with tennis balls on your, <laughs> on your walker. And, um, yeah, so everybody was shocked in my family. Um, but were uh, they supportive of it? But they were supportive, um, to a degree at first they were just, you know, they knew I was a little off anyways. So <laughs> they're like, here's another one. Like, I don't think they believe me initially. <laughs> they just thought it was another crazy idea because of my age, but I was in really good shape at the time. Um, and, uh, I mean, the only thing is that I was over the age limit. So I found a way the recruiter said that they're doing age waivers back in the East coast. And he went to recruiting school with this other staff sergeant. And, um, yeah, I got a one-way ticket to Nashville. Oh, so you could not get a waiver no, here I on the West coast. They would not sign it. Yeah, here in the West Coast. So I went to the East Coast. And um, did that force you to go to boot camp on the East End? Or? No, it, here's a crazy thing. I go to MEPS and they're looking at my paperwork and they're like, wait a minute. You're, it says here you're going to the East Coast and only girls go to the East Coast from the West Coast <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, look, man, that's where I'm going, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to Paris Island. <laughs> so but a hurricane hit the East coast. So they routed planes from the East coast over to San Diego. And when I'm, you know, I'm just waiting to go to, you know, for my ticket to go to Paris Island. Then they come back out and they tell me, Oh no, you're now going to San Diego. And I'm like, perfect. You know, that's close to I, home, close to home. I know the weather, you know, that's what I really wanted anyways. So you got really lucky, really lucky, jumped a, jumped a plane to go to the east end of the country to, to enlist, to only come back to the West coast to go right. to boot camp. Yeah. Yep. Um, what year are we talking about now? 2008. Okay. Yeah. So September 2nd, 2008. War in the middle East is in full force. Right. Um, yep. you know, you're going to get deployed. Yep. 
Yeah. Especially, uh, you know, I mean, I enlisted in the infantry and then from there, um, became a machine gunner. So it was something that I, you know, wanted to, wanted to do. And what were you thinking at that time? How long were you, were you kind of giving yourself a, a timeline? Yeah. I gave myself four years. I said, um, you know, I was like in an old Chevy that never got driven. So let's <laughs> take it out for a spin. <laughs> Didn't do it, you know, when I was younger, but I was again in boot camp. One kid outran me by 10 seconds in the final PFT. You know, he ended up uh, going to first recon and, uh, and, I mean, there was like 81 kids in my, my platoon. So I was, you know, I was solid. Were, did you find that with, cause you already had a lot of life experience underneath your belt by the time you went in. Did you find that the senior staff kind of pulled on that knowledge or, or did the, did the younger guys kind of lean on you for that knowledge? Younger guys leaned on me. The senior guys, I was again, really lucky. I had, um, three gunnies as drill instructors, which rarely happens. Um, two of, one of them was older than me. Um, by the, what a day, maybe? <laughs> no, he was actually like three, four years. He was a senior gunny. And then, um, the other gunny was my age. And, uh, I mean, they saw I was performing and it was the other drill instructors that would come in and like pick on me, you know, Hey, where's the old guy? And, and then, uh, yeah, they were just, talk trash, but I, I was older and more savvy. So, you know, one drill instructor comes in and he was just like, look, how old are you? And I was like, oh, I'm 31, sir. And then, uh, he said, how old do you think I am? And then I, I told him 45 <laughs> <laughs> and then all the other drill instructors start laughing and then he starts losing his shit. And I, I mean, a lot of this stuff I knew where, you know, it's, it's mental fortitude and in mind games. And so I was just like, oh, here we go again, you know? Yeah, but the on top of that, yeah, it's mental, but you've already come in, not just with a lot of life experience, but you've had a lot of adversity, you know, trying to keep your company going, losing mm -hmm. your company. So a lot of it had to, did you find yourself, I guess, getting annoyed with the mental games or were yes. you able to easily just kind of roll with it? No, it was really annoying, you know, at times. And then to see some of the kids immaturity, that was, I think my biggest hurdle because again, you know, there they believe in group punishment and, you know, you're only as strong as your, your weakest, you know, Marine there. And we got some guys that, you know, would bust out crying. Two of them, um, they ran away, you know, during boot camp, they took off from Camp Pendleton <laughs> yeah. at night, you know, and one of the guys, was I've had like, a couple of guests tell me stories like that. Yeah. They just down in San Nofri, just leave their gear and gone, yeah, gone. <laughs> So yeah, one of the, one of the idiots, he was, I remember we were checking in and the guy's like, Hey, where are you from? And I was like, are you serious, man? Like we're not in the street, you idiot. And then, uh, and then he woke me up at night and he was like, I can't take it. I think I'm going to leave. And I'm like, there's a truck stop a few miles from here. <laughs> like go over there. And then I went to sleep and then we woke up and he was gone. <laughs> I was like, Oh shit. I was just kidding. <laughs> I think he's actually going to leave. They ended up catching him. And I, you're I just, like, I think he might be at the truck stop. Just, just a hint, just a hint. <laughs> just saying <laughs> he's probably wearing all green. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that was, I think one of the, the most challenging parts was just, I was older than them. And then I can see what the drill instructors were trying to achieve by the most part. And I, I signed a paper paperwork before I went in that I understood rank structure and, you know, age wasn't going to, I mean, they literally made me sign a statement 
And so I, I respected everybody and just basically just kind of holding them non-liable because of your age and right. potential injury. Right. Exactly that. And then just, I couldn't really, um, they needed to make sure that I understood I was older and wasn't going to use it to my advantage or belittle them just because they were younger than me by like a long shot. <laughs> At 31, could you have done 20 years? Yes. Yes, I could have, um, which would have put me at, yeah, at 51. <laughs> would that have required a different waiver? No. Oh, okay. no, no. Um, no, I was, I was set. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and we'll, we can get to that portion of it, but I was in two car accidents in the tail end of my military career while you were in active right, duty when I was on active duty. Yeah. We'll so, definitely get to that. Yeah. So you ended up doing how many years total? Eight. So you did a second enlistment, right? Um, how'd that go over with the family? The second one went well because, uh, I mean, I was meritoriously promoted three times and, you know, I was jamming and then I called my brother. This was in, uh, yeah, 2012 and yeah, 2011 actually. And I said, Hey, what's the climate like out there? And he said, bro, just stay in <laughs> like stuff's not, you know, not too good out here. So I said, okay. So I reenlisted and I got orders to do, um, I and I duty over at a reserve station in um, Los Alamitos. So it, it gave me an opportunity. One of the staff sergeants that I knew, he's like, look, you're a little bit older. You, you got to start thinking about, you know, what you're going to do after the Marine Corps. So he recommended I do. I'm that going to fashion school, yeah. <laughs> which was, you know, I, when I first went in, I got to my unit. I, I got stung by the fashion world. And even though it was like my passion, I said, you know what, I, maybe I'll put that aside and we'll just see where, where this takes me. And I didn't really want a whole lot to do with fashion school, but then I was on ship, um, on the USS Harper's ferry and, um, I got caught doodling. I was drawing on my laptop and, uh, that bug always comes back. Yeah, it comes back. And um, yeah, next thing you know, I'm designing a plaque for the company commander. I was designing platoon t-shirts. And then there's a plaque I designed that's there in Okinawa in the officer's club for the battalion. And Very cool. The creative stuff just kind of seeped out, you know, but I was trying to hide it from everybody. But, you know, I got caught by Staff Sergeant and Gunny. And then I thought I was in trouble, but they're like, damn, this is like really good. And then next thing you know, they're telling the first arm and then it just kind of gets out a little bit but I suppressed it, um, as much as I could. When I got over to I and I duty, um, the commanding officer, he said, you know, you're, you're busting your ass. Like if you're older, if you want to finish up college, like, you know, maybe you could go officer route if you want to stay in. Um, he said, there's age waivers for everything. He said, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you have uh, my recommendation. <clears throat> and so I, I was exploring at that time and I, wanted to go to fashion school was you talked about, you started doodling again, but mm -hmm. other than that, was there anything that really significant that said, no, this is what, I guess what brought it back to the mm -hmm. forefront of your mind? Like, no, this is where I'm going. I mean, it was so evident. I'd go to the PX and I'd pick up GQ magazine. I'd Vogue, like I'd be, where everybody else is, you know, looking at guns and ammo. Yeah. Guns, ammo and everything. And I'm sitting there looking at, you know, trend and it, it's, it was just in me. And so, and that's really what, what was intriguing to me. So I, I, uh, I saw it building up 
And then when it came time to make some decisions, because I knew that most people my age were retiring, um, that I needed to find some, some direction quickly. <laughs> and, um, I knew, especially after the first accident, it happened on 11, 12, 13. Um, that shook me like really bad. I was on the 210 freeway leaving the battalion headquarters and uh, I was going about 75 and a car lost control, comes at me head on and it goes in the carpool lane. I was in the fast lane and it hits me with its rear bumper. Oh, wow. And mind you, I was training for an Ironman. So I was like running, biking, lifting, like just like a madman. And I think that's what the doctor said, save me because I took a big hit on the freeway. How bad were you injured? Um, yeah, L4, L5. I mean, I, after the impact, I got out and I went to go help the other gal who hit me and I was walking. It was weird. I, I like, I went into the, to the emergency room and they saw how fast I was going and they put a neck brace on me. And at the time, you know, I was a hard charging Marine at the time. And I'm like, get this shit off me. <laughs> like, but, um, yeah, I knew like two days later I was just, I couldn't move. Yeah. Surgery. I did not need surgery. I, I fought it. Um, but I went through physical therapy, chiropractor, everything. And, you know, about a month and a half later, I was out in the field, you know, in my gear and, I remember I was in so much pain after the training, I would put uh, rocks on the, on the floor, on the ground and just, just sharp rocks just to lay on them and lay on them. Yep. What in long term? do you still have issues yep. with your back? Yeah, still have. Yeah. You can end up, end up, end up having surgery or I'm going to continue to fight it. Yeah. As long as I can. Um, but, uh, yeah, I still do the cortisone shots and still, you know, going to get treatment and whatnot through the VA. But it's something you kind of learn to live with. But it made it it made an impact on me staying, you know, getting out. Especially the second accident, I was in um, the reserve component for six months, and uh, I shouldn't have any didn't even tell to this day. I haven't told the gunny like why I I checked out. But then it was a non obligated um, service, so I was just going month to month, and I couldn't pick anybody up anymore. Especially after that second accident, that was it. It was. Check How bad me. were you injured in the second one? Um, or was it just aggravating the first one? Yeah, it aggravated the first one, but it was uh, a collision on uh, 8th and Hill, downtown LA. A car took a red light and it stopped me. I didn't even hit the brake. I was going about 40. Maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was another like solid hit. Yeah, you don't do it halfway. No, <laughs> no. Kind of like a Marine. I'm going to do it 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I even have to. <laughs> no brakes, all gas. <laughs> Uh, literally geez just my luck but yeah then i knew that you know there's no way we had the combat fitness test a month later and there's just no way and then i extended it into february and yeah, i knew my body was just yeah just could not handle the rigors of of the infantry so i just checked out so you came out what year uh 2016 and did you know was your plan to go immediately to fashion school? I was on active duty when I was going to fashion school. Oh, so you were still active while you started? Yep, while well, I started. So the CEO and first sergeant would tell the, the colonel that I was there with them. And then I would go over to um, yeah, fashion school certain days. But they'd give me like extra every weekend duty. We would do a lot of funerals. So I, I was on a lot of um, additional funerals. And so they gave me an opportunity, but they also like balanced it off with, okay, the time that I was away, I had to make up for it. 
But did you start it before you exited out because you knew you were going to be exiting out? So you're like, I need to start this process. Right. Yeah, I needed to start the process. And I didn't see myself going back to Cal State, Northridge or any other traditional school. Um, I kept, you know, going in. I mean, when I finally applied to fashion school, my final interview was um, the guy that interviewed me and accepted me was a corporal in the Marine Corps. So he was over in Okinawa and he kind of shot it to me straight. And um, yeah, I, I fit in, you know, perfectly because of him. And then from there, I, yeah, I just kept moving. Did you find that there were a lot of veterans while you were at? There was a few There weren't very many. But um, it was a tight knit community and then there was a veteran club. And so I became active in the club and ended up becoming president of that club for three years. And um, that's really where I found purpose of um, supporting and helping veterans. And I knew that if I did my job right, when I transitioned out, I'd have a place to to go to if I needed you know, help. And thank God I did that because it would have been, you know, would have been a lot worse. <laughs> so how much of it were you able to get done while you were still active? Um, I was able to almost finish, um, one program. And then, uh, when I got out, I finished an additional two. Yeah. So I have three degrees from fashion school. So, so this may sound like a silly question. Is it a bachelor's degree? They're, uh, professional or, designations. Okay. Yeah, they cost way more than a bachelor's, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I did apparel industry management, advanced study in menswear. And there was like seven students in that program and then advanced study in denim. So for somebody who's thinking about going to, mm -hmm. you know, fashion school, what do, when you say advanced study in denim, what does that entail? Total immersion in that topic and really like it goes from networking to you know everywhere from learning about cotton and how it's grown and turned into you know the cotton fiber turned into a yarn and all the way through through the marketing process so it's it teaches you business it teaches you design design you either have it or you don't um, but you get to learn the tools to be able to draw with a computer and then really relate it over to a garment. So if somebody has an interest in designing fashion, but for whatever reason, they don't have the artistic side to be able to draw it and design. Mm -hmm. Could they still go to fashion school? Absolutely. I was one of them. Yeah. I, I, I can barely understand my name when I write it. <laughs> and one of my professors on every freaking homework, he'd be poor line quality, poor line quality, you know, and then I have nerve damage on my hand. So that doesn't help. Is that from the, the yeah, accidents? Yeah, from the accidents. And it started with the uh, the 240. I used to just pick it up like a pistol. Which <laughs> if you're going in, don't do that. Because um, it has long-term effects. But uh, anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I was really horrible at drawing like freehand. But on the, my ideas, when I used a computer, like I would be able to express myself that way. So... At any, or at what point, or did you get a mentor or somebody to kind of guide you from the outside? Well, was that there at fashion school is where I, you know, I was mentored by Mr. Hoover and then some of my other professors that, you know, introduced me to the factory that, you know, I've been using and who mentored me and he was a pattern maker for double RL and, um, been doing, you know, fear of God when they started and a lot of, you know, Tom, he does jackets for Tom Ford. So I got to learn quality and, you know, I got mentors there at fashion school. Otherwise, 
And again, if you think back to my earlier statement, I knew that the answers I was looking for were there and no shit. The answers I needed were there. I just needed to figure out how I was going to get there, how I was going to pay for it. And that just happened to go via a Marine Corps recruiter. And that that's how I was able to finally like get my answers. Otherwise, yeah, I don't think it would have happened. Now, when did you actually decide you were going to start your own company? When I was there at school, um, I was interviewing with other companies and um, I just didn't fit in, you know, um, and mind you, I was interviewing when I was still on active duty and just the mindset of the other employers and just the environment. I just did not fit in. Are you trying to say an active duty Marine doesn't fit in into the fashion industry? <laughs> this one, <laughs> this one didn't at the time. <laughs> now I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm there, <laughs> I'm alive and well, but, uh, at the time when I, you know, and if you're in law enforcement or military, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, because we're used to a certain type of culture and, and those of us that pushed a little bit harder than, than our peers, there's a certain dynamic that attracts us and an environment where we excel in those of which I did not find in, the, in most of the fashion industry. You know, there was one company majestic that um, I was chatting with and it was uh, measuring the, um, the baseball players and working with their uniforms, which is kind of cool. Um, and I was thinking about that, but, you know, again, there was a lot of travel and, you know, I didn't want to do another deployment. I just wanted to be home. And, and so I decided to just do my own company. And one of my professors is like, I mean, you were the top menswear designer, like you've got it. Just try it. So, I mean, when I was on active duty, I bought an Airstream trailer, uh, gutted it, turned it into a mobile store with the help of Marines. And then, uh, yeah, my stepdad and was just making clothes um, myself and selling them at the Rose Bowl flea market up in Santa Barbara and just going, pulling that thing, <laughs> the shiny Twinkie up and down <laughs> California. That had to keep you busy. It did. It kept me busy every weekend. And then um, when I was in the denim program, I was selling my homework. So I was like showing up on Monday and they're like, all right, where's your project? And I was like, I sold the denim shirt. <laughs> And they're like, are you serious? I need the money. I was like, yeah, literally like I need, I'm like, that's what this program's about. Right. So then for the final, the, the uh, director said, look, do me a favor and just don't sell it. Cause you need something to show. So I was like, okay, cool. What was the first major brand or major store that you were in? And did you feel that you had made it at that point? Um, when we got the call from Nordstrom and they launched us online, I kind of felt that all right, like I'm in the big leagues, like I'm here with the big brands. Now, did you go seeking them out or did they come looking for you? No, they came um, looking for me. Um, when I, I showed right before the shutdown project 2020 in Las Vegas, which is a fashion convention. Uh, I showed this jean that I designed for a Marine who lost his leg is in that Afghanistan. The one with the zipper? zippers. I saw the article. That's where I first learned about you is I saw the article. They were talking about the, those jeans. Mm -hmm. So uh, I met him at, uh, through uh, merging vets and players and operation jump 22. I had a little booth there in um, Oceanside and he, he looked fashionable and he was like, man, I'd love to wear your jeans. But, but he said, I, I can't because of my prosthetic. It's very uncomfortable. And, 
I saw him again at the Marine Corps birthday. And then I said, there's something that we can do. I'm sure we I'll figure it out. And, uh, fast forward. Um, I went through a really rough time. That was in 2019. Um, yeah, I lost, I got my truck repoed, lost my, I had a warehouse and lost that and was just, I said, the last thing I do, I'm gonna make a gene for this Marine. And I borrowed a car to go to LA and, uh, I met him and his wife and within 48 hours we had a gene for him. So he comes back and, uh, apparently it, it, you know, made his daily life easier. And then he can now like feel normal in public is what he tells me. And then, uh, so fast forward to project 2020, he ends up and mind you, he lost his left leg and left eye in Afghanistan. And he drove himself from Temecula to Vegas shows up and is like, Hey, I'm here to help you out. I was like, Holy crap. Okay. It was just super impactful for me. You know, again, finding purpose. Right. Right. And, um, so, uh, yeah, come, come to find out, we end up being on the cover of California apparel news, you know, American pride with him on the cover and the story about us. And then rivet magazine, it was uh, diesel seven for all mankind G star and Trinidad three were the rivet award winners. And for those of you who don't know, those are really large companies, um, really influential in the fashion world. They kind of make a, a little bit of denim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of denim, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of denim between all of them and little old me. So, um, no, but that gene was, you know, really impactful. He was there and then we caught the eye of Nordstrom. So then they, they made a booked an appointment for us on March 5th. I'll never forget that March 5th, 2020. So I fly up March 4th in the morning. I go over to Staples. It was already 4.30 in the afternoon and uh, getting the last little things I needed for my, this was it, you know, my meeting with Nordstrom. We get a phone call that uh, our meetings canceled. They shut everything down in Seattle because of COVID. Yeah. So I'm up there. <laughs> You're like, I've got a mask. <laughs> yeah. I had everything. I was willing to put on the gas mask from the core, like everything. But then uh, one of the guys that was on on the buying team, um, he was a Marine Corps veteran, and he was like, "Look, uh, I know, you know, you came all this way, like nothing official, but he said, I at least I want to, you guys are Marines, so I want to come out and take a look at your stuff. So um, straight up, Chicano style, out of the trunk of a <laughs> rental on the street <laughs> was the first presentation for one of the Nordstrom people. And hey, if unofficial. you can do it, keep it real, right? Oh, I was like, man, I thought I like graduated from this, but <laughs> here we go. But I knew how to do it, right? <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> Been there, done that. So, uh, yeah, pedaling in the street again. But, um, yeah. To Nordstrom. To Nordstrom, yep. And then that's when... Um, yeah, so he took a look at it and then kind of things, the world shut down. Um, I had some jeans that I made right before the shutdown. So we launched those online during one of the worst economic times in us history. So I had people from the industry, like <laughs> emailing me, like, are you nuts? And then one guy, uh, from the show had said, look, if you could sell a jean this week, you can sell a jean anytime. Cause this is like. Honestly, he said, this is the worst time to launch anything, but you know, we're Marines. So we went right into the fire, you know, and we sold, we sold jeans. The moment uh, our factory turned over to making masks, 
So um, I donated my time. We shipped over about 80,000 masks to hospitals. And this was in April 2020. So masks, you can get a mask. Right. Um, and then uh, the moment that we could open up again, there was um, right before the shutdown, complete shutdown, Vidalia Mills shipped me salvage denim from the first run that they had. So it arrived, but their Huntington uh, Park Police Department, because we manufacture Huntington Park, they would come in and they were checking who was like making garments when you weren't supposed to. And, you know, they were coming daily. And of course, we're, you know, um, we weren't pushing that at all. So the moment that it opened up and they said we can produce garments again, I made jeans and we launched it on the 4th of July. Of 2020? 2020. Yeah. Very cool. Once again, salvage denim. The middle of summer <laughs> online. <laughs> That's what everybody's looking for. Everyone's looking for denim in summer, right? Yeah. So I get a flood of emails once again, and we ended up selling out. Yeah, we sold out. And then from there, uh, we made enough money to do the only trade show in the United States, which was in Dallas. And it was August of 2020. Yeah. So we were producing here locally so we could fulfill. We had uh, about 10 appointments that we made with retailers and we sold to eight stores. We delivered within a couple weeks. And then from there, it just started. Yeah, started the steamroller. The steamroller when people were having supply chain issues, like we're, you know, our, our zippers are made in Anaheim. We're sourcing denim locally. So, I mean. Now, is that a, is that a goal of yours or was that a, a business model that you wanted to be fully American from product to produ production from when I was or materials school, to production. Right. When I was in school, that was my business plan, like cone mills. Um, Cause the American gene has somewhat faded away. You know, it's predominantly imported those brands that are producing here. You know, I have mad respect for all of them that are keeping it alive and but on a global scale and even here in the United States, most people um, want made in USA. They just don't want to pay for it. And uh, that's always been, you know, the challenge. And there's great product made, you know, overseas as well. So I'm not knocking everything that's, you know, produced overseas. But I wanted to be made, you know, solely here. Um, but as the brand's growing and the limitations of, you know, larger factories and everything, we're going to maybe um, be forced to import in the, the near future, but you know, we'll keep it as close as we can. And, um, and there's certain things that just aren't produced here anymore. So, you know, there's some Chino fabric and other things that we have to, you know, we're bringing in from Spain, Italy, um, some things that we bring in from Japan. So we're bringing, and they all use American cotton. So we're just buying our cotton back. <laughs> 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 so going uh, through a middleman to get it back to the United States. Pretty much. We'll, we're making it happen. And, um, but again, I'm, I'm going to continue. I'm not going to give up on it. We're going to keep pushing the made in USA side for those that, that appreciate it. And, um, and, you know, hope to be a pioneer of that, uh, especially, you know, abroad. And just recently we opened up our first store retail account in, uh, Amsterdam. So they were, they didn't know that there's American salvage denim again, <laughs> and we were the first to let them know. And so it's kind of cool to be a part of, you know, American denim history. Cause was, isn't, or wasn't, or is Japan kind of the leader in salvage denim? Japan is um, the leader in, in salvage. Um, 
their craftsmanship is in attention to detail. I mean, it's just, they're producing amazing stuff out there. Um, but heritage and historically it's an American, one of the most iconic American pieces in U S history, you know, and it's not produced here on a large scale. But so, like you said, it's because of the, the cost associated with producing yep, it. Exactly. The cost labor, labor is the, the big one. So it's hard to compete with labor from other countries, but yeah, Japan, they do amazing work. I went down there as a, um, student in the denim program. So I went to a couple mills. I did see large bales of us cotton. And, um, you know, when I served, I, I served in Japan. So I was out there in Okinawa a couple of times trained to camp Fuji. So you're like, Hey, since I'm here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll take a little vacation. I've, I've been around here before. <laughs> it's kind of nice to go in human clothes for once, <laughs> but, um, no, they they do great work in Japan. So they're, they certainly are a leader in selvage denim. I think here in the United States with the Vidalia mills, um, you know, turning on those, acquiring the machines from cone, uh, from the white Oak plant. I think they're, yeah, they're going to do some great work and, and bring that back. Um, and they're already in, in production. They're running two shifts on these machines that were built in forties, fifties, sixties. So, you know, those that don't, you know, know, like look them up, Vidalia Mills, iconic American denim. Um, and then I play a small role in that. I say small, but I think it's, it's a lot bigger. Are than they that. merely a supplier of denim? They, they're a mill that, um, makes yarns. And they produce denim. Yeah. So, um, but I think what they're, yeah, they want to be a, a leader in denim and they want to sell yarn. So that way when it goes to other countries, instead of bales of cotton, they can go out, they can buy yarns already completed. So they work with farmers from the area with um, BASF. They have a program called E3 Sustainable Cotton. And I got to meet cotton farmers. So the Hardwick family, you know, got to finally sit down and meet with, you know, people that are growing the cotton and they finally got to meet a designer. So it's just the dynamic of what's happening is, is really powerful. And I think for, um, for this time and that resurgence of something that we as iconic as a blue jean to be a part of that is just, um, for me, extremely important. We're, we're going to keep, you know, going down that path. I think as the people are more aware of it, uh, maybe they'll they'll jump on, but it is more expensive. Your long-term goal, do you hope to stay, keep your production here in California or is that cost prohibitive? Um, it's getting harder and harder, yeah, by the month. And, um, but we're going to keep fighting, you know, that's my intent. Uh, I think we'll all, here in California, it's, um, it breeds creativity, you know, it's still the entertainment capital of the world. So there's a lot of stuff going on, which is kind of good to pull inspiration from and uh, for design purposes. But no, I mean, I've looked at, you know, Texas, um, out in Louisiana as well. They're, they're looking at building a sewing factory there in the mill. So, you know, there's a lot of exciting opportunities coming up. So that way we close the loop where from farm turning into yarns and cut. So all within, you know, 10 15 miles if we can is the goal because it cuts on the, you know, we get our tree hugging part out of the way. <laughs> uh, the carbon footprint, you know, gets put down. It's more efficient and, you know, but here in California, it's getting, it's getting challenging. 
And I would imagine it's a, it's almost a double-edged sword in that you get a, a large company like a Nordstrom that says, hey, we want your product, but now you have to increase production to meet those demands. Uh, as far as keeping that going, uh, how difficult is that? It's a challenge, um, but like streamlining the product line for that, I think is, is key in what we've done in our, our product mix. Um, finding skilled workers here locally is going to continue because most people don't go to school to become a production seller. So it's, you know, until we can fix that, I think that's going to be our, our, our biggest obstacle is just finding skilled workers where right now they're, you know, we're relying heavily on, on people coming from other countries to sew here for us, you know. This is definitely going to sound like a, a stupid question. So it's not something that I know your line is more than just jeans, but I'm just focusing right. on jeans. Can that not be done completely automated or do you not want it completely automated? Yeah, no, it still has to be handcrafted. Yep. There's certain parts that are that can be automated, automated, and there are companies that are spearheading that. Um, but it still has to flow through the needle and the hand. Yeah. Which, yeah, there's just no way around it to this point. Yeah. <laughs> now I know you're very involved in the veteran community Yes. and, and your clothing line even alludes to, or, or ties back to your Marine Corps time. Is that something that's, this may sound rhetorical, is it very important for you to keep moving that forward as far as the veteran community and your company? That is the most important part of this is um, being able to make an impact. So we participate, um, advocate and donate um, when we can, because that's what I found purpose as a student, you know, to help other veterans. And I needed the help. And I know it's, it's real. Um, I serve with two seven and you know, our, our suicide rate in that battalion is, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and so I know there's something that needs to be done to inspire other veterans to pursue or find purpose and pursue whatever their passion is. And I think that's what keeps me going. We just happen to make great jeans, you know? Um, but, that's what gets me up every day. I would like to, you know, continue to provide jeans for, for veteran amputees. And that has been the most rewarding thing I've done way more rewarding than, <laughs> and I, I told the, the head buyer from Nordstrom and my, my sales rep was like, dude, why'd you say that? But what I told him was like, I don't like, I'm already successful because I was able to change the life of a Marine. And whether you buy from me or not, like it, what's most important to me is that you're on board with my mission because at the end of the day, that's what, that's what pushes me forward. And I know that's where I can make an impact, you know, for some reason, you know, I, I was an infantryman. I ended up on ship twice uh, and I didn't go to Iraq or Afghanistan and I was struggling with like, wow, well, what, what happened? You know, I was in the middle of a war and what was all this about? And uh, now that, that I'm on this side of the fence, I, I've come to accept and know without a doubt, I'm here just as I was placed with this 
my battalion that just got back from Afghanistan and struggled and, and they were venting to me because I was older and I was able to be there for them. I can continue that now. And, um, to inspire, you know, veterans and, and make a difference in our community, um, to me is the most important thing. This is why we're doing it hands down. And no matter what I was like, no resources. I, I figured out how to make a gene for Marine, you know, and moving forward. Um, what I tell our, our, all of our retailers and everybody that I do business with is like, what's most important to me is that I could have a beer with you and that you're supporting my mission because I am, I'm really active in my community and, you know, I, I stay in close contact with Marines that I serve with and now organizations that I'm very active with mainly right now, merging vets and players. They've, I've been really close with them for years and, um, yeah, so that's, what's going to keep it, you know, keep me going. What's most important, how we get there is not as important, like where, how we figure out how to, you know, make money or, or be able to fulfill demand in the marketplace because we're, I mean, the denim world is a global market. And, um, if I can pioneer and spearhead American denim, that's my passion. But what's more important, like be able to provide genes for amputees and make a difference in the veteran community or, or just sticking to made in USA, you know? So to me, the mission has priority. So how we get there may, may or may not change. And I mean, if you, you look at, you know, all of our competitors, you'll find maybe a handful, if that, that are, you know, making here. And, and, um, one of my competitors, I, I really love the fact that they hired one of my buddies, Navy veteran, and they're one of the largest factories in LA. And, you know, they're, they're doing great things, fighting the fight, you know, hopefully they can keep that up. Um, but overall, um, uh, we're, uh, like I said, I mean, we're now moving into Europe and, you know, expanding our horizons, but at the same time, what's in the back of my mind is being able to show by example that you can take the uniform off and go out and find purpose, find passion and live life. You know, I went to the cemetery with my mom not too long ago and I noticed that there was people that live to be 40, 60, and they've been dead for over a hundred years. So it's inevitable that we're going to be dead longer than we're alive. And as veterans, we need to understand that, like, don't rush that date. There's no hurry for that. You know, this can be fixed. And I'm, um, an example, and there's other veterans out there that are very successful that we can also, you know, lean on for inspiration or, or guidance. Um, and then if people are struggling, like we've all struggled, regardless, you went to Iraq, Afghanistan, you served, you're in law enforcement, like there's a change. And anytime there's a change, there's an adjustment that needs to happen and you either adapt and overcome or you struggle. And what I'm advocating is that you can adapt and overcome. Um, but you have to find purpose and you have to find your passion, who you were before you, like me, I, I was a kid dreaming about fashion before I put on the uniform, you know? So what happens when we get out of that uniform? Like what happened to that kid? You just die off. It don't, just let, didn't, don't let your dreams die. No, don't let your dreams die. You got to keep like reconnect with that. 
you know, and it doesn't matter where you're at in your career, whether you do like 30 in law enforcement, 20, 30 in the military, you're going to get out. You still have life to live. And, um, it can be anything, you know, any, literally anything. If you like collecting leaves and that's your passion, like, like go for it, but you got to find something sitting around at home, moping around or just drinking yourself to literally death doesn't, doesn't do anything positive. For those that don't know the, the, the group already, uh, Emerging... Emerging Vets and Players. What is that organization? Yeah, it was founded by Jay Glazer and uh, Nate Boyer. And what they do is they take um, combat veterans and former professional athletes, and they, they do a, a workout, and then they have what's called a huddle. And in that huddle, you're able to get things off your chest. Um, it's a peer-to-peer network, and they meet weekly. And they hold each other accountable. So if anybody's struggling or or they need help and just being in that environment again, like for me, I was able to go back and I'm doing push-ups with the corporal from my platoon. He's now the program manager in LA. You know, a guy that yelled at me and made me dig a fighting hole and Sergio, (laughs) I'm calling you out with the MRE spoon (laughs) in the desert, in the wind. (laughs) Um, But no, I, I, I like, I feel that, um, that camaraderie again, you know, cause that's what we miss really. Right. And I remember, um, uh, Gunny Johnson would be like, Oh, you guys are complaining about the Marine Corps, the big Marine Corps, the Marine Corps here. It's you guys, you know, look at it from that perspective. And really that's what I miss, you know, about the Marine Corps more than anything. It's just my brothers to the left and right. And so with this program, I'm able to, and then obviously like being involved in sports, um, we would look up to these guys, but then we find out that the transition is very similar minus, you know, a few million dollars with some of them, but still like what they go through is very similar to us. So then when we're able to get together and talk about it and we can see that, Oh wow. Like this guy that I used to watch on TV on, on a deployment, like uh, the USO played the Super Bowl for us over and we we're out in the jungles of Thailand and then like to see some of the guys that I looked up with or that would take us. And I think you can relate to this from law enforcement, take us out of the fight, if you will. Right. So that's the power of sports. So to see, to be a part of this organization that, that does that and is consistent with it. And that's the key consistency. There's a lot of organizations doing a lot of great stuff, but the key is finding consistency. Um, To me has been, probably the most uh, helpful tool that I've, I've used. So again, you got to plug into community because once you, you find um, somebody that understands you and you find that, that camaraderie again, that's going to help tremendously more than any alcohol or any pill, the VA or people can give you. That is the most powerful medicine to progress. And to always remember, the only thing I would add to that is that more people need you here and, and to not forget that there are those that are out there that are pulling for you. Right. And, and you know, it, the biggest thing that I think we need to work on is getting rid of that stigma that asking for help means you failed. It doesn't mean you failed. It just means you need help. That's all. And, and don't be so, you know, the gung-ho Marine. Yeah. I can do this by myself. No, ask for help if you need it. Yep. And we all need help. And that's one thing we need to get over because when you don't ask for help, that's failing. 
And so just changing the narrative of what really is successful and what is failure. So if you're not asking for help, um, because if you're like stuck and there's no forward progress, that's, and you're not asking for help, that's failure. Asking for help to propel forward that success. And I think we need to do a, a better job in changing the narrative, you know, and then because we hear a lot about, um, you know, the suicide rates and all the negative stuff. And, and I think subconsciously it's kind of like planting a negative seed in, in um, people transitioning minds. But if we tell more of the success stories and really what success looks like and what failure really is, because we're, we have a misconception that asking for help is failing. Then I think we change that. Then I think we'll, we'll start moving forward. Well, and, and to use your story as an example, and, and I don't mean to undervalue this in any way at all, but you're a prime example of ups and downs, but yet keep moving forward and keep, keep pushing towards the goal of your mission. Absolutely. 100%. You have to keep pushing. And the way I'm able to do it is by, I found purpose. And then I have, when I am down, I have buddies to my left and right to this day. If they don't hear from me for a day or two, they're like, Hey, how you doing? Simple as that, you know, and then being vulnerable. And that's what I learned, you know, through uh, Jay Glazer, Nate and MVP is that um, being okay with being messed up and just like saying it and, it, and it's okay. Like you, you get through it and it's weird how it, that magic, you know, kind of happens, but um, plugging in and just being connected and really like keeping your eyes on that mission because it's anything that you, you do that's outside the quote unquote, no, quote unquote norm, especially entrepreneurship is going to push you way beyond limits that you even felt you did while you were in service. And, um, and it's unknown territory for a lot of us, but that's what keeps me going. Now we're in 60 stores, Nordstrom.com and you know, it's, um, growth is, is scary. Like I, like I mentioned before, like, holy shit, like we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> and why are there multi-million dollar companies all around me? <laughs> like, cause I hadn't, like, I'm so focused on my mission. And, uh, when I pop my head up and look around, I'm like, wow, like, uh, yeah. And now I'm swimming with the sharks. Nope. Yeah. Unintended. No, I am. I am. I mean, when I have like large brands, you know, coming into retailers that I've stolen shelf space with, and they're offering things that I just can't, um, to try to push me out. I'm like, all right, I must be doing something right. And, and again, like when I, I get stuck, I just ask for help. Like, I don't know. I'm a designer, you know, I'll design you a collection like no other. I'll compete with any major designer on the runway out there. And, but, um, when it comes to the business side, um, the, the transitional struggle, the, like Jay Glazer says, the roommates in my head that, you know, mess with me daily. Um, that's when I just, you know, just like when you have a jam, what do you do? Tap, rack, bang, you know, um, same thing. We got to learn how to tap, rack, bang with our brain housing group. And for me, what that looks like is, you know, calling up my buddy and just being like, Hey bro, I'm, I'm struggling right now. And then, then we figure it out, talk about it a little bit, get off my chest, you know, drink water, change your socks, 
and keep moving. <laughs> well, you, you bring up a great analogy and, and all of us who have been on the firing line have, have heard this work, the problem, clear the malfunction. Yeah. Don't just stand there and do nothing. Work the problem, clear the malfunction. If you can't fix it yourself, raise your hand, get a range master down there to assist you. Same thing. If you need help with a Rubik's cube between your ears, ask for some help. Yeah. But for some reason we, we feel that that's failure. That's weak. That is not weak. That is strength. And that's what I've learned. I wasn't like this before. You know, I, when I was in fashion school, I failed three quarters in a row. I was at the desk of the, the dean and about to get kicked out. Was it because of your headspace and not headspace, being focused? My brain housing group. Yep. My transition, my anxiety. Like I was, yeah, I didn't know what the heck was happening to me. I was just spiraling out. I was like, great, fine on active duty, president of the club, doing all these events. We were chapter of the month out of 2000 schools through the SVA and I was jamming then all of a sudden, boom, hit a wall and, um, wouldn't open up about it, you know, just held it. And until I learned that and told myself that that is being weak, that's weakness, that's failure. And I changed that mindset. Then I was able to keep moving, you know, keep moving forward. Looking back on that in, in hindsight, did your wife see it in you and, and call you out on it? And even then you still denied it. The people that are closest to you, um, you don't want to hurt them. So you, you hide it as much as you can, or you will isolate yourself to keep yourself away. So this was my isolation space here, you know, and I didn't want them to see me burning, but of course there's only so much you can hide, you know, and then, you turn into a zombie and you know, the VA dumps you with pills and you're just trying to figure stuff out. And it wasn't until I, I accepted that, like, why am okay. Once I figure it out, then what? And I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, that's right. Like, okay, I have it figured out. Now what am I going to do? You don't think about that step. You're just trying to figure something out, but really what you need to figure out is that it's okay not to know. And it's okay to, and really empowering to reach out for, for help of other people that have gone through what you, you've gone through. And so here, my, my wife and my kids, they, you know, God bless them for sticking with me through the whole thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, we all without us wanting to do some damage on the home front, you know, and a lot of it, we think we're protecting them by pushing them away, but we're yeah. not. No, we're not. We're, we're in, in, in a way traumatizing them even more yeah. because they, they're feeling helpless. Like they can, they could probably see it yeah. and they don't know what to do. Yeah. And so you're putting them out on an Island of, well, well who do I turn to? Well, and that's how it really is in, in society. Really. Like when we transition out, there's people that want to help, but a lot of them don't know how, and we shut them out. So like, there's no progress being made whatsoever. And I think when I was interviewing with these companies, same thing, like I was going through stuff and I knew they, in my head, I was telling myself like, no, they don't get me. Like, I'm just not even going to go here. But when I started to open up and and surround myself with the right team and right people and organizations, and, and then even like being and explaining to my wife and family, like what I'm going through. And it wasn't until my dad, he lives out in Florida. He came back over here and he's a Vietnam vet. He knew exactly what I was going through, you know? 
And I remember like the stuff that we went through growing up. And now I'm like, oh shit. Yeah, it was his transition. He was struggling with, that's what it was. And he was holding it and we took the brunt of it. So just trying to break that cycle and really being more open-minded as to how to approach this. What is that tap rack bang? Like, what does it look like? Because there's no real manual for it. Everybody's different. Yeah. Everybody's slightly is, is different and their approach. But one common denominator is, and, and I think that most can say is that we're really good at shutting the world out and clamming up. And we're really good at not being vulnerable because we don't want to show our, our scars, you know, because our families look up to us, you know, because we're in the uniform. We served our country, um, continue to serve there in law enforcement. And then um, they look at us as superheroes. And that was the image that we want to keep. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, you know, when I, I had a conversation with my son and then I started explaining to my wife what was going on then things started to change. And I think that being vulnerable, which is really, I can say being strong is, and what that looks like is just being honest with those that love you and want to support you. And, um, and asking for, you know, if you don't like the, you don't like asking for help, ask for guidance, like just change the damn word. And maybe that'll, you know, whatever it is, you know, some people like clocks, some people like SIGs, whatever it is, but find what that is for you and works for you. And you'll, I guarantee you, you will see forward progress. You know why? Because if my dumb ass could do it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, anyone else can, you know, and really there's no like magic sauce, magic trick to, you know, what I'm doing outside of some of my creative work that I, you know, don't mean to toot my own horn, but you know, toot toot. I know I'm really good at that. Um, outside of that, it's just sheer finding purpose. Um, and just going after staying focused, asking for help and going after that goal. Is there the next component of the fashion world that you haven't stepped into yet? That's your goal. Yes. Yeah. Like growing the brand on a, on a more of a national and international stage is what I, I want to, you know, step in the realm of where we're producing, you know, hundreds of thousands of units and, and really, because I know if I get there, I'll be able to make a bigger impact in my community because, you know, it takes, it takes finance, it takes money to do it, you know, but I've been able to do it with practically nothing. So I know that the more successful I am financially, I can make a bigger impact in my community. And um, the more stores that we're sold at, the, the bigger the brand gets, we can continue to tell this message and really make that, that impact. And even, you know, on a global scale, like, why not? You know? Your motivation is, is truly commendable. And I do believe it, people often make fun of it or underplay it, but your motivations are pure and, and your goals are to give back. And because there's that, there's that honesty in your purpose. I do believe you're going to get to where you want to get to because you're not looking out for simply yourself. You're looking to, I want to succeed because I want to give back. And it's that giving back. That's going to bring you 
forward tenfold. Yeah. Well, I, I told Nordstrom, I'm already successful, like in my terms, you know, I want to be my, what does success look like to me? And it, that's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in service. And um, if I could be more of service then that, that fulfills me, you know, I get my personal like fix and, and I design stuff and, you know, that's my creative space. That's my briar patch, if you will. Um, but to be able to like bring on, grow this company where I can hire more veterans, like point people in the right direction, get them, help them, you know, um, get to from point A to point B um, and just make life better, you know, for our community. And, and it goes, a, a lot of veterans are in law enforcement. So they all go, go hand in hand. So the fact that, you know, you're, you're doing this work and including military and law enforcement, I mean, that is, it's huge. It's huge. It's very important. I appreciate it. Taking you backwards. Mm -hmm. You're, you're starting down your, imagine you're the younger you and you're starting down your fight, your, your fashion journey for somebody who's in that, those shoes today. What's the few key pieces of advice that you would definitely want them to know? Number one, get the training, like go to fashion school. If you, um, if you can, um, figure it out, there's ways, you know, to do it, but go to fashion school, get the training you need. And above all, like find your purpose, whatever it is. Like I said, if it's collecting leaves or like, you know, saving ducks or whatever the case is, um, just find that purpose. What are the, uh, I guess it was more, what are the pitfalls to look out for getting into actually into the fashion industry? Um, really being like honed in on, on the end state and not the journey. I think a lot of times it's really about the journey and we overlook it through stress. Um, everyone that goes to fashion school dreams of being that famous designer and, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's impossible, but you know, um, like go down that path, but enjoy that, that journey. And a lot of times like finding out where you fit in, in this spectrum, because it's a, it's a large industry. So getting the training, knowing the path. And then I think what I've lacked on is like trying to enjoy the journey and the financial component, especially of entrepreneurs, people that want to start their own companies and do things like you really have to have a strong financial like outlook because that is going to be your biggest stressor. <laughs> so being underfunded and trying to achieve things, you know, with nothing, I, I don't recommend it, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, not impossible, you know? And, uh, yeah. So does that answer your, your I, question? I, I believe so. Yeah. So how can people get in touch with you if they have any questions? Um, Trinidad three jeans, uh, shoot me an email T three at Trinidad three.com. So through social media, you know, at Trinidad three jeans is a, an easy way. A lot of people are on that. So, um, if anybody needs any kind of guidance or, or wants to get, you know, more information on how I, how I was, I was able to manage through some of those transitional challenges or for merging vets and players, like, you know, we're, I'm open. That's what I'm here for. I just happen to make good jeans. <laughs> I appreciate your time, sir. Sure. Thank you.
Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.